Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome everyone to the third episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, episode number three, the big three. And today it's all about growth strategy. We get tons of questions and requests for tips and tricks and insight into uh, de novo, meaning cold start, Uh, growth strategy versus acquisition-based growth strategy. And we're constantly asked to compare and contrast which one is best and what would we recommend. We're gonna unpack all of that for you today. And I'm also gonna share with you a tip around something called the rule of 72. The rule of 72 is something that many of you may not be familiar with, but it might influence the way you think about your growth strategy. So I think you'll find it very, very helpful. I appreciate you joining me on today's show. It's sure to be another note-taking episode. So get your pad and pen ready and brew another cup of that awful Keurig coffee because we're ready to roll. Let's do this. Once again, thanks to everyone for joining me for episode three of the podcast today. And like I said in the opening, it is all about growth strategy specifically comparing and contrasting de novo approaches with acquisition-based approaches. And I'm going to unpack a lot of tips and tricks for you, um, the way that you should think about both of them and some things you really do need to know. But before I get into that, I want to stress one point to everyone that often gets overlooked. And that is that when people think about growing their business, Inevitably, they're thinking about footprint expansion, adding additional locations, growing the uh, the breadth of the business, if you will. Uh, and while that's important for sure, you should never neglect the core business. What I mean by that is you can't just rely on footprint expansion like acquisitions to facilitate your growth. You have to be able to generate something called organic growth. And organic growth is incremental growth out of the existing locations and what you would call the core business. So if all of your uh, current locations are flatlining, meaning they're not producing any growth whatsoever, and all of the growth of the, the revenue growth of the business is coming through acquisitions, that sends a really bad signal to two key parties. The first is the bank that's lending you the money because what that tells the bank is that they are basically funding the growth of the business through your ability to add locations, but you haven't proved that you have the ability to grow those locations on a year over year basis. And that's, that's a dangerous signal to send. The next signal that it sends is to a potential acquirer. If the intention is for you to build this business up to some level of revenue or locations and then exit the business, you wanna find a private equity capital partner 
or maybe a strategic buyer that's going to buy the whole business, they're probably not going to give you maximum value for the business because they see through the numbers and they understand that while you can borrow money from a bank and continue to acquire more locations and hopefully integrate them, that's all fine and good, but you haven't proved the ability to really grow them after you've acquired them. You can't grow the core business organically. Uh, and that's a, that's a bad signal to send to either the banker or a potential acquirer or capital partner down the road. So as we talk about growth strategy, fundamentally, you've got to have the ability to execute and grow organically the core business, which are, which are the locations that you have under management currently. All right. So let's, let's put that as the foundation for growth, that it has to have some level of organic growth within the core business. That being said, we'll now talk a little bit about de novo approaches and acquisitions. So de novo is cold start. It's startup. It's uh, finding a, a location or a piece of land, and it's the build out uh, and everything that comes along with it uh, to the, the opening of the location and then driving new patient revenue on a month-over-month -month basis um, to some level of uh, profitability and, uh, and ultimately success. Um, many people are, I guess, somewhat understandably reluctant to pursue a de novo growth strategy. Their fear is that they um, borrow a lot of money. Uh, it takes time to build one of these locations. Things can inevitably go wrong in the build-out process. And then what if they build it and nobody comes? You know, what if they can't generate um, uh, new patients that, that literally walk through the front door uh, and get dental work done? And, and while I understand that that's a, a concern for a lot of people, uh, it really is something that um, DeWalker and I try to dissuade people from taking that pessimistic of an approach to it. Because a de novo strategy can be brilliant, it can be beautiful, and, and it can absolutely be executable if given enough time. On the other hand, if your goal is to simply build a, you know, some number of locations or revenue within a short period of time, uh, two to three to five years, uh, and you're not willing to let some of those de novos uh, grow organically, um, uh, and consistently to a level of profitability, then maybe your time frame is simply too fast for a de novo approach to really be applicable. On the other hand, if you've got, if you feel like you've got more time, and you can afford to be a little bit patient, a de novo strategy is a an absolutely brilliant one, and I'm going to unpack some bits and pieces of that. So fundamentally, on a de novo approach, you really need to be able to create what we call equity on balance sheet. And what equity on balance sheet means is that you've reached a level of profitability from a valuation context where the equity of the business and, and each new location is growing at a faster rate than the cost of debt service, essentially. If you're able to do that, it, cre it, it keeps your borrowing window open with your primary lender. And that's critically important because a lender is going to want to see a track record of historical performance, and they're going to want to understand the metrics around performance from a pro forma 
or forward-looking context. And if they see month over month, new patient growth, revenue growth, uh, uh, operational break-even and profitability growth, they're going to be much more encouraged and willing to continue lending that de novo-based growth strategy than if you're struggling to replicate successes or if there's massive inconsistency within the business. So again, fundamentally on a de novo strategy, creating equity on balance sheet protects your relationship with your lender. And that's of paramount importance because everybody we work with is pre-private equity. They're all using bank funds to grow. And if there are no bank funds available, growth strategy really doesn't matter. Okay, so working with your bank to understand how they make those lending decisions. You've heard me talk about that before, but it's really key in this de novo strategy, obviously. The second thing to understand is a fundamental difference between operational breakeven and equity breakeven or net equity breakeven. And this kind of further substantiates my first point. So when we talk about operational breakeven, Operational break-even is something that probably all of you are very familiar with. It is the amount of revenue that you need to generate uh, to cover all the costs of operation and, and basically be profitable on the bottom line. So that's a, a, on a month, you know, what's the month in which we hit operational break-even when the business turns a profit and we're generating enough revenue to cover our expenses? That's probably pretty obvious to everyone in the in the audience uh, and and frankly not very hard to calculate equity on the other hand and a net equity break even point is a significantly different endeavor than an operational break even context and when we talk about net equity break even the way to think about this is whatever your investment costs are to start up that business from scratch. What is the amount of revenue that you need to generate that if you had to sell the business for some valuation, that the sale of the business would generate enough of a transaction value that you could pay a broker, you could pay some taxes, and you could pay off your bank loan and basically break even at that? You wouldn't make any money on the sale of it. It's simply a net equity break-even number. Now, obviously, the first component of this that, that, that swings the number most is that initial investment cost. What's the amount of the loan that you're, that you're going to borrow from the bank to get this endeavor going? And then how do we work backwards from that initial loan amount to determine the revenue required to generate enough profitability and valuation that if we had to sell it at the end of the first year, we wouldn't make any money, but we could pay a broker, we could pay some taxes, and we could pay off the bank loan and basically break even. That's the thought process behind net equity break even. And there is sort of a, a, a calculator or a methodology that we use with clients to arrive at that number to give them clarity about it. But as a rule of thumb, if you're trying to do rough calculations here, usually the revenue number that you need to generate in the first year is two times that initial loan amount. Okay, 
we, we talk about it in the context of the first year that the, the new location is open. If you're giving yourself a longer period of time, or if you just want to say, what is the point where I reach a net equity break-even point? Um, it would be about two times, the revenue number would be about two times the initial investment. Okay. And that's, uh, again, a target that you should have to shoot at because when you open a, a location for the first time, we like to say hope is not a strategy. So the idea is not to borrow a lot of money from bank, open up a new location, and then pray that patients show up. No, the, the intention here is to have a budget and a formula and a box that you're working in so that the initial build out doesn't you know, become a gourmet restaurant if you had hoped to build a McDonald's. You want it, you don't want it to take on a life of its own and be like a choose your own adventure type of a project. Quite the contrary. You want to have a business plan, you want to have a budget, you want to have a build-out timeline, and you want to have a box that if perfected, you could replicate and stamp out in pretty short order if you had enough locations. And then from that, you're able to deduce the revenue number that you need to hit for a net equity break-even context. And from there, if you know your revenue number, you should also know the average value of a new patient in the first year of a practice. So when a new patient comes to you, uh, they might come for an uh, initial comprehensive exam and, and potentially, potentially a cleaning. Some people do those on the same day. Some of them do them uh, on back-to-back days or something. And then the average value of the new patient is the amount of dental work that an average or a typical patient might get done in their first 12 months in the practice. So when you can solve for the value of an, the average value of a new patient in their first year in the business, now you know the average value of a new patient and you know the revenue number that you need to hit in the first year. And if you divide that average value into the revenue number, now you know the number of new patients you need for that year, for that first 12-month period. Now we're re- reverse engineering our numbers into something that we feel more confident that we can control and a target that we can shoot at, all right? We're not taking a shotgun approach here. We're much more trying to use a rifle to hit the target. So if we know, based on our initial investment, and what our revenue projection is for net equity break even, and we know our average value of a new patient, now we know the number of new patients we need to hit. The next thing is how much does it cost us to acquire each one of those new patients in our marketing campaign? And if we know the average cost to acquire a new patient or cost to acquire a customer in marketing parlance, then we can forecast what our marketing spend needs to be in order to achieve a net equity break-even point by the end of the first 12 months. So this is really you know, peeling back the onion, reverse engineering the numbers, and getting very granular in the detail so that you can give your team a couple of different numbers to hang their hat on. And let's think through this from a bit of a continuum here. So first off, is the build-out budget uh, for your contractor, whoever is managing the the process, the project uh, from your team. Uh, if it's an operations director or something like that, they know the build-out number that they have to hit. 
Then we know um, from a marketing standpoint, the revenue number that we need to generate based on a, a new patient flow for the year. And we've got a marketing budget that we're going to spend to funnel patients into the business to generate patient demand, essentially. Um, and we also know from a clinical and a hygiene perspective, the average value of a new patient that's going to allow us to get to a net equity break-even number at the end of the year. By working through this whole process, you now should have probably about an 18-month initial business plan. And the 18-month business plan might be something as follows. The initial six months could be the build-out, the warm-up, and the preheat campaign for the grand opening day. Okay, and there are a lot of things going on concurrently there, but when you're managing to the number and you're managing the process, you've got a lot of things that, that happen before the doors open, obviously. When the doors do open, then you have the next 12 months on a build month over month, kind of a ramp basis. Maybe it's a soft opening or you're not gonna be open full capacity day one. You're gonna iron out any of the kinks and allow your team to kind of bed in and everything like that. Um, so it's reasonable to conclude that you're going to build momentum over a 12-month period. But that initial six months of the preheat campaign, then the initial 12 months of the first year in business, if you can replicate that with some degree of consistency and achieve a net equity break-even point around the first 12 months, maybe 15 months, that sends an unbelievably good signal to your lender that you are a low risk in terms of a borrower and you've got some type of secret sauce and a method to the madness and you're, you're, you're buttoned down tight, operationally speaking. So that's the way we think about de novos. The last thing I'll say on de novo, um, if you can solve for those uh, aspects that I mentioned before, the last thing I'll say on de novos and the reason that we really love them so much is that you can create remarkable consistency in them. You can control a lot of the variables. And the number one variable you can control is the culture variable. Because if you've got a what we call a launch team, um, which might be your, your operations manager or VP of ops or something like that, and some of his or her key people that you're going to cross-pollinate into the new location from your existing locations, they all know how you do things in your business. They know why you do things in your business. All the systems and processes and methods to the madness um, are, are, are not, there's no change management there. They all come from the business. They're going to replicate the successes of the business with you and for you in the new location. And that means that there's less change management and opportunities for um, things to come off the tracks from a human capital standpoint. And that ought to help you sleep well at night. If you don't have to worry about the people and the way they do what they're asked to do and, and why they're doing it or pushing back against you, then all you have to do is just focus on hitting your numbers and driving that outcome. So we really, really love the de novo approach um, because it takes some of the, the culture variable out of it. And that can be a huge relief. So let's pivot and move on to the more popular approach, uh, which is acquisitions in terms of growth strategy. Um, I would say probably 80% of our clients um, use an acquisition-based approach, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, 
And that's understandable in a lot of contexts. Um, but we see um, a, a wide degree of variance in the success of acquisitions. And I don't think that's any different for our clients versus what you would see at an enterprise level candidly. So let's maybe start there when we talk about an acquisition-based growth strategy. We know a lot of the, the people in the business development offices for the uh, enterprise level DSOs, all, all the name brands that you know and love out there. We've gotten to know a, a good number of those folks um, through the years and had some pretty candid conversations with them. If, if you're ever able to sit down uh, with somebody that, that runs the business development team or is on the business development team for an enterprise level DSO, I'd encourage you to ask them, you know, what's their batting average? And and by that, I mean, you know, you think that uh, a, an enterprise like a Heartland Dental or a Dental Care Alliance or, or any of these, you know, would be just gobbling up practices and anything that came on the market, they'd, um, they'd immediately pay for and, and they're going to win the acquisition. And that is not the case. It's not the case at all. They really bat about 10% of all the opportunities that that come across their plate. So why is that? And and what's what's the rationale behind it? The most important thing that I can impress upon you um, from an acquisition perspective, if you got nothing more out of this section, I hope you'll remember this one thing. And that is you should not swing at bad pitches. And I think there are too many people at an emerging group practice level that feel like any practice that comes on the market, they have to make a bid on, they have to make an offer on it um, because it's such a competitive market, because uh, practices don't come on the market that often in, in their uh, general area. So they've got to go after all of them. Um, and, and that is not the discipline that has made a lot of these enterprise level groups successful. The enterprise level groups understand fundamentally what a problem a bad acquisition can be, how much time it can cost them, what a mess it can be, um, what a drain on EBITDA and and operational resources it can be. Having to go back and fix something or even divest of it a year down the road is a major problem. And for that reason, a lot of the people that work in these enterprise level groups understand what their acquisition type profile is. You've heard us use the term target acquisition profile. Uh, and if it doesn't meet, if, a, if a, a practice for sale doesn't meet their target acquisition profile, they don't make an offer on it. They pass. The bat stays on their shoulder and they don't swing at it. Okay, so the first discipline is knowing what your target acquisition profile is and waiting for the pitches that most closely resemble what that profile is and not swinging at those that that could cost you in the long run. Okay, so the second thing to understand um, about making acquisitions is that the fundamentals of acquisitions really come down to two things, and that's risk and cash flow. So where does the risk lie in terms of making the acquisition and more importantly, post-close? And what are the cash flows that are involved with it? If you can gain a a fairly high degree of confidence around mitigating risks and understanding where the risks are, 
and and have a high degree of confidence in maintaining the cash flows, you're probably going to make a success out of that acquisition. Uh, on the other hand, if you size up the risk incorrectly, um, it could come back and and create a pretty adverse scenario for you and your team. The next thing I'll say around that, and and it, this sort of plays off both the risk and cash flow uh, comments, is that you need to understand the fundamentals of valuation. You will see practices for sale from traditional dental practice brokers, and they're listed as a percentage of collections. Um, if you are operating an emerging group and, and you're accustomed to acquiring uh, businesses as a percentage of collections, and you don't understand how that relates to a, a valuation methodolo methodology that is a multiple of EBITDA, I'll just say that percentage of collections and multiple of EBITDA are not the same thing. And if you are going to build a successful group, it is going to be valued as a multiple of EBITDA. And whoever your bank is that is lending you money is going to continue lending you money or not continue lending you money based as a, a, a metric of a leverage against your EBITDA. So if you're not sure what EBITDA is, how to calculate it, how to use it from a valuation context or a borrowing context, it really sets you up for a lot of jeopardy if you're going to be buying businesses as a percentage of collections. Okay, so the math behind those two, you, you need to, to really dig in. And if you're not confident on EBITDA and EBITDA multiples, you need to get confident quickly or work with an advisor that can help you with that, because this is something that'll trip you up very, very quickly. And God forbid, you could actually build a business that, that might show really well in a revenue context, but you could run out of cash. Uh, and, and ultimately that might cost you the business. So the next two thing, next two comments I'm going to make are really about sizing up acquisitions. And when I say sizing up acquisitions, it's not just valuation, be it percentage of collections or multiple of EBITDA. It's not just, um, is the seller going to stay on or transition out? Um, it, it's, it's really more around what you are going to do with the business after you close on it, after you have acquired it. Nobody buys businesses simply to maintain them, or at least you shouldn't. You should only buy a business if you think you can improve it. And when I say improve it, that comes down to either revenue generation or expense reduction. And it's very prudent if you are going to size up a potential acquisition, and if you're going to make an offer on it, I would impress upon you that you need to know the top three areas where you feel confident that you can generate revenue after you've closed on that business. So is it new patient generation, like you've got a marketing engine, or maybe you've got specialty services that are already incorporated into your business and and the, the seller had been referring out all the specialty work. So, you know, you can keep that those revenue uh, lines in house. Is it something where you're going to expand the days and hours of the business and maybe put a, an associate in there? Have you already negotiated preferential insurance reimbursement rates and you're going to get a pickup on the revenue line um, just from that aspect? There are a lot of different areas of opportunity related to revenue generation, but you need to have at least two or three of them 
that you're really confident that you can do with that business that the prior owner couldn't. And those are going to be ways for you to improve the top line of the business. The corollary to that is obviously improving the bottom line of the business. And while revenue generation will certainly do that, you also need to have uh, some degree of confidence around your ability to control expenses. So much like I said on revenue generation, what are the top three areas of expense containment? Is it uh, that your dental distribution company has a lower cost of supplies that you're able to access versus the seller? Is it a decreased lab cost? Is it a reduced um, cost of employee benefits because you've got more employees and got greater buying power? Um, it's, you know, maybe lower marketing costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what are some of the areas of expense reduction that you are forecasting that you're going to be able to take out of that business on a pro forma basis that give you confidence that you're going to be able to expand the bottom line? Um, and ultimately, what you're trying to achieve is expanding the bottom line at a faster rate than you're growing the top line. The next thing, I'll, the next comment I'll make around acquisitions is that far too many emerging groups that are really in the infancy stage of, of getting going, um, the, the founder or founders of the business feel like just making an acquisition is good enough. Uh, if I can borrow the money to buy that location, that's what I'm gonna do um, and, and I'm gonna grow my footprint that way. That's problematic. Um, for the cultural reasons that I mentioned before. And, um, you know, I'm going to make another comment about that in a second. But you should really think through having something called an integration team. And an integration team are some of your key clinical and operational people that have been with you the longest, that understand uh, the rhyme and the reason around how you operate the business and what makes, makes it successful and how you do what you do. And how do you want to integrate this newly acquired practice into your existing business? And maybe more importantly, what's the pace of change involved? So what all are you gonna change on day one? You're probably gonna change the payroll company and the benefits company and some things like that that, that you really have to change. But you know, the practice management software is a big one. Are, are you going to change practice management software? Yes or no. And if you are going to change it, when is that change going to happen? Is it going to happen in the first day, in the first week, we're going to close the new business and then retrain everybody? Or is it going to happen six to nine months down the road? You know, and, and why is that? So I think there are a, a lot of different sort of uh, aspects around change management that an integration team will help uh, facilitate in that new location. And, and you also want to make sure that there is a, a steady voice and a representative from your, um, you know, fr from your business um, that is sort of soothing any of the uh, ruffled feathers of the practice that's newly acquired. I can tell you from a prior life, having been on the receiving end, if you will, of an acquisition when Patterson Dental uh, acquired my family's dental distribution company back in 2002. Those are nervous times. And, and when you are um, a newly acquired business, you don't know what to expect. And, and the employees, uh, myself included, typically um, go down rat hole, rabbit holes far too quickly. 
and uh, far too deeply for that matter too. And they assume the worst. Um, oh my gosh, I've got to get my resume freshened up because I'm going to be out of a job. Um, there are people that worry about a lot of things that are beyond their control. And all too often, those worries are unfounded. You didn't buy their, you didn't buy that practice. You didn't buy the business to fire everybody. You bought the business because you admired it and you wanted to be part of your empire. And you want those people to play a critical role in it. And they need to understand that. And an integration team will help facilitate some of those communications. The last thing I'll say on acquisitions is, um, uh, and I'll preface this with a, a comment from um, the late, great Peter Drucker, who was the dean of the, the business school at the University of Southern California and a great business writer over the last couple of decades. And he's got a number of quotes. You've probably heard me reference them multiple times, but one that we've probably all heard is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what that means is that you can have the greatest business strategy. You can, you know, really uh, find the right businesses to acquire in this context. Um, but if you can't get the culture right, all of that EBITDA that you're hoping to um, accrue to the bottom line is going to attrition away and probably attrition pretty quickly. So understand the cultural impact as it relates to making acquisitions. Um, and if yours is a strong culture business, I would want to lead with that from an acquisition context. I'd want to be very mindful of that uh, in any business that you acquire. When culture doesn't fit, um, uh, it has an immediate detrimental impact. Some of it is, the, is simply just a headache. Others can be a financial nightmare. So keep that in mind as it relates to acquisitions because culture is a really, really big driver in the success or failure of those businesses. So the last piece in today's podcast is something that I prefaced in the uh, opening, and it's called the Rule of 72. Um, some of you may not be familiar with this concept. It's really more of a, a, an investing concept, um, but it's immediately relatable to businesses from a growth standpoint. And the Rule of 72 is a, a simple mathematical formula um, that you can fall back on. Uh, and, and what it centers around is how quickly will it take me to double the revenue or profitability of my business uh, given a certain time period and growth rate? And the way to think this through is basically dividing 72 by a number. So let's say that you're asking yourself or you're, you're telling yourself, um, I would like to double the revenue of my business in four years. Okay, well, that sounds like a, a pretty, pretty, you know, ambitious goal, right? Um, and or a pretty tight, uh, pretty quick time frame. Um, but all too often, that's where people stop. You know, I, I want to I double the revenue of my business in four years. Well, that's short on specifics. Yeah, you've given yourself a time frame, and if you know what your revenue is now, you can say that you know doubling the revenue is you know two times that number in four years. But what does that actually mean? What does that mean on a year-over-year -year basis in terms of the amount of growth that you're going to have to hit each year if you're going to double the revenue of your business? If you take four years 
and you divide it into 72, what do you get? You get 18. What the rule of 72 states is that if you want to double the revenue of your business in four years, you're going to have to generate 18% year over year over year over year growth to hit that doubling in revenue. On the other hand, if you gave yourself eight years to do it, said, I want to double the revenue of my business in eight years time, well, eight will go into 72 nine times, meaning you're going to have to generate 9% compounded annual growth year over year to double the revenue of the business. Sometimes you can divide a number into 72 and it doesn't go quite as equally as those two examples do. Like say, you know, if you're going to grow at 15%, how long would it take you to, to double the business? Roughly five years, you know, not equally, not cleanly, if you will. But that gives you a context around growth rates. And if you start thinking about doubling your business and giving yourself a certain time frame to do it, and then you understand the year-over-year growth that you're going to need to hit, the year-over-year growth number should push you back into, okay, how do we execute on that strategy? If it's a scenario where uh, maybe you give yourself eight years to double the revenue of the business and you have to grow 9% per year. 9% is a number um, that's you know probably about twice the industry average. Uh, but if you're a group, you can probably generate m- a good bit of that in, in what I would call organic growth, which might only mean that you have to acquire an additional location to pick up additional points of revenue growth every other year or maybe every three years or something like that. In other words, to double the revenue of the business over an eight-year period and grow at 9% year over year doesn't necessarily mean you got to buy a business every year to do that. Um, 9% per year might be too tall to hit every year on simply organic growth metrics though. So as we understand um, the, the amount of growth we have to generate, that has a direct influence on the way we execute our growth strategy. So hopefully the rule of 72 is just some quick calculations and a quick, quick mathematical mathematical formula that'll help you size up what your growth strategy needs to be. And you can sort of relate that back to organic growth versus actually expanding the footprint through either de novo um, or, um, uh, or an acquisition-based strategy. So I hope you found all this to be educational and, and you know, hopefully pretty informative. And most of all, like I say, I, I hope you found a, a way uh, or an area in your business where you feel like you can apply it. If you do have any questions about anything I've talked about today or in a, a prior episode or anything that's um, top of mind, please do feel free to send me an email directly. And I'd be happy to try to answer your questions on the podcast or at least give you a reply on some of it. You can email me directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Please do stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So again, thanks for joining me on today's show. I hope you did find it uh, uh, informational and um, helpful in a a lot of ways. And before we wrap things up, uh, I I want to 
to take a minute and maybe reinforce uh, an announcement we sent out to the marketplace recently. You've probably all gotten it by now, and that's about a new addition to our team, uh, Miss Amy Tool. Uh, for those who've been followers of me and DeWalker for uh, the last couple of years, Amy is somebody that our clients know extremely well, and probably a number of you uh, have met her um, at any of the um, shows or summits that we attended in the past and might have even uh, corresponded with her via email. She's been our lead analyst on the consulting side of the business for a number of years and is really the genius behind a lot of the financial modeling in terms of data and analytics for the consulting side of our business. She's a great addition to our team. She's a known known, as we would like to say. Uh, and it gives me and DeWalker a lot of confidence in terms of continuing uh, our ability to continue to, to generate that high degree of specificity and accuracy in a lot of the modeling that we perform for our clients. So I want to take a second on the show today and give a formal welcome to Amy and uh, say to the audience that we're we're really thrilled about having her and and that's a cornerstone for the business as we continue to build it out. And I think it's um, uh, pretty safe to say that you'll all be hearing a lot more announcements forthcoming about additional uh, members, uh, new members of the team to either join us um, uh, and support our endeavors with our uh, clients out there. On a personal note, um, I wanted to share something that I found that was uh, kind of cool, if you will. Um, many of you who know me know me that I know that I'm uh, a bit of a foodie and I like to cook. Um, I've got a seven-year-old daughter, and which probably makes me more of a short-order cook than anything else these days. And for all the parents in the audience, I'm I'm sure you can relate to what I'm about to say. Um, but I'm constantly searching for uh, new things to cook, new ways to cook, and and fast <laughs> things to cook. Uh, and I found a really neat uh, channel on YouTube, uh, and it's called Recipe 30. That's the word recipe and then a three and a zero after it. I don't know who the, the chef is that um, is the author behind this, because all of these uh, videos are super quick. They're probably between three and five minutes in length. Um, there's no narration to them. Uh, it's all just some soothing music as as he's preparing the dish. And and um, all of it is, is pretty quick to plate type stuff. So I'd say it's simple recipes with a heck of a lot of flavor um, and a lot of variation in terms of theme. It's not Italian or Asian or continental cuisine. It's a kind of a blend of everything. And, and the videography behind it is stellar. I mean, it, if, if you watch one of these things and it doesn't make you hungry, you've got a major problem. Let me, let me assure you of that. So for those who are a little bit um, uh, foodies out there and they like uh, cooking or at least just, you know, watching food being prepared, these things are quick, fast, and easy. And I've made a handful of recipes and, and they're outstanding. So I would encourage you to check out Recipe 30 on YouTube um, uh, and and give me a comment. Let me know if you like it um, because, like I say, I found it to be um, uh, it, it's a huge help to me in terms of my creative pursuits in the kitchen. That's for sure. Well, that was a heck of a lot of fun today. So I hope you got a lot out of the episode. If if you did, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got questions, like I mentioned before, feel free to submit them to me directly. And my email address, once again, is perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. 
and I'll read and answer them in an upcoming episode, or at least uh, hit you back on email with a response. You can obviously find out more about us off of our website, and that website is polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care.